And I definitely think that's what landscape is for me. It is a questioning about living and life and what we do in places and what we leave behind. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This episode is the third episode of a short series on art, creating and care, linking with the very thoughtful exhibition Notions of Care. The show brings together five artists and groups to consider care and art making through materials, how we relate to one another and as an approach to the world. And one of the artists in the show who I'm talking with today is Polly Stanton. Polly is an artist and filmmaker who primarily creates moving image works that look at how human action and use of the landscape affects not only the landscape itself, but how we perceive and interpret the landscape. Her practice focuses on sound and visuals with an immersive process which sees Polly spending much time in the sites that she looks at, from the goldfields of Victoria to the landscape of Queenstown. We start by talking about care in the arts and how Polly grew up with parents in the entertainment industry and seeing early on the struggle to sustain a creative practice. We also talk through her early work in cinema and screenwriting and the shift into contemporary art. Polly also takes us through her process of working in the landscape and how it's not about romanticising the environment, but about care and understanding the world in non-didactic ways. And for someone who works in this realm with ever-growing environmental threat, Polly tells us how she feels about the future. And before we get started, a kind thank you to our sponsors for this series. The show Notions of Care is a bus projects exhibition touring with Nets Victoria, which is curated by Catherine Genevieve Honey and Nina Molehole. This project is supported by the Victorian government through Creative Victoria and received assistance from Nets Victoria's Exhibition Development Fund 2020, supported by the Victorian government through Creative Victoria. I thought I would start this podcast by asking everyone the same question, considering the theme, which is, what does care mean to you? It's such a simple question, isn't it? But it's actually (laughs) a really complex one too. Well, I think care for me is taking time, thinking about other people's point of view, listening, being an ally. I think care is a lot more complex than we give it credence for often Mm. or what caring can be or what it looks like is not necessarily feel good (laughs) kind of situation sometimes. Sometimes caring can be pushing back, it can be being angry, it can be being upset, you know, I think display itself in lots of ways. But essentially for me I I always think caring is thinking outside of myself And, and that's in all sort of contexts, whether it's an interpersonal relationship with another person, mm-hmm. uh, with someone else, or whether, you know, it's with a place or a site or with a non-human, um, it's always thinking, trying to feel and think beyond my sort of point of view. Would you say that you try to bring a sense of care into your practice? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I also think it's, again, a, a sort of complex, always shifting sort of situation because my understanding of caring for myself changes as I experience things in the world and as I go through things as well and have, you know, these sort of different sort of layered story experiences of working and living and losing people and losing loved ones and Mm. things happening in the world. Um, I mean, I think the Black Summer Fires, you know, was a, a, a major event that 
changed a lot of people in terms of their understanding of care for each other but care for environments as well. Um, so there's those kind of like more kind of global or national kind of experiences that bring care into our lives and into our work and into our practice in a certain way. Yeah, I think care is something that is kind of essential when you're working in environments and with ecologies in particular, but it's a very, um, again, it's a really changeable process and I'm always finding I'm learning and doing things wrong in it, you know, or, or having to change the way I work um, or just having reflected to me that I could have done better or I didn't think about these kind of things. So, again, I never feel like it's this static kind of situation care for me when it comes to my work or just in life. Yeah. In terms of, I guess, the bigger art industry level I feel like care has really become a topic of conversation particularly in the last couple of years and on the one hand it's obviously so important to look out for each other and to care and to have that be really genuine and then on the other hand you're like is care starting to become its own form of labor now yeah I mean I think yes I think it's such a good question it's great that it's come into the dialogue within the arts industries it's um a long time coming but then equally I guess like everything it can become a real buzzword and then a box to tick whether it's funding or whether it's in institutional shows or just in the way people are talking about things and talking about curation and I think it can at times just be disconnected with the practicalities of what that is. I mean, I think it's pretty, you know, that experience, maybe you've had it, I've had it where people talk a lot about care, but actually they're not being caring in maybe how they're going about things. Mm -hmm. And so I think that can be a little bit of a problem um, in the arts. You know, I think the way around that is really just always open dialogue and people being grounded and understanding what they need and what their understanding of care is. And but yeah, I think it is a bit of a prickly pear sometimes, Mm -hmm. Um, and it is it is a labour as well and can be really turned into that. Um, But essentially, I think it's 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 a great thing that it's it's a subject that's being raised and spoken about and thought about and worked on. Mm -hmm. Is there? Any sense, I guess, in your practice in which you have ever felt burnt out or as if, like, that politics of care just feels non-existent? Oh, every year. (laughs) (laughs) I think the arts is such a a tough industry. Um, I grew up in the entertainment industry because my parents are actors and so I feel like I have an absolute lifetime of seeing how exhausting and tough it is and how it doesn't end and also how how do you sustain yourself in it um but I feel like I you know I I ask that question of myself almost every year like do I want to keep doing this it's really (laughs) tough it's just very pressurized and I think you know uniquely in Australia I think it's tough in the arts around the world and each culture has its specific way around it it's pressure points. Mm. I feel Australia is particularly difficult culturally with how we think about the arts and how we support it, Mm. how it's incorporated into the everyday or how it's recognised. So I think it's a difficult environment to work in long term in just in that aspect. But yeah, I think, you know, I, I really, I think when I first started in fine arts, which was like in my late teens, um, 
I've come and gone from it as well. Like I've moved into other industries because I thought, oh, this doesn't kind of give me what I want. I can't see a future in this. And I went into film and then came back. And um, and so I sort of moved around a bit in, in different areas. And I, I think, yeah, that just generally a lot of the arts and entertainment industries together, there's just a, a general lack and, and a real historical lack of oversight and, um, you know, just unions stepping in and people to go to and yeah. just a lot of exploitation just across the board. That's become really rote and it's still really prevalent. You know, I, I think actually arts has gone a long way in the last 10 years mm. uh, with paying artists and understanding that they have rights and yeah. um, that they can also push back and they have a voice and a value in all that. But then equally it's there's still a lot of exploitation going on yeah. as well. And I always wonder if social media has something to do with that because, you know, if you're not going to pay an artist properly or if you're going to do something unethical, there's every chance now you can get really publicly called out for it. Yeah, I think absolutely people just can contact the public in a more live way now. Mm. And there's good and bad things about that too, isn't there? Um, I mean, I can think about all the bad things about social media, but I agree it's you know, uh, there's some great things about it as well that I really appreciate. But yeah, one of them is that people are a little bit more held to account. Yeah, yeah. To change track a little bit, but pick up on that thread of your parents both being actors, I was curious if you grew up in an arts-minded family, but I guess that definitely answers that, that you did. (laughs) I did, I did. I mean, I guess the, like, acting or the entertainment industry is a little bit different, but it's still part of the same ecology. Mm. And so moving more into fine arts was a bit of a different tact. But, you know, I definitely grew up with a lot of writers at the dinner table and a lot of poets and a lot of crossover people, um, lots of makeup artists and, you know, cinematographers and, like, people who work in that realm. And then occasionally some painters were around. Um, But... Yeah, I definitely remember a shift of, actually, it was my mum's ex-husband who really, um, he came to stay with us. They have a really good relationship. And um, he, when I was 15, he came uh, down from Sydney to visit. And I remember him asking me, who's your favourite artist? And I was just like, oh, I can tell you my favourite filmmaker and director is an actor, mm. but I have no idea who my favourite artist is. And he really opened the door to thinking about uh, different mediums, different disciplines within the arts as well. And and I just found that sort of, I just responded to those kinds of uh, ways of thinking and doing, which is a little bit different from, yeah, more sort of entertainment-based yeah. work, yeah. But you did first study film. So did you think that you were going to work in cinema in some way? Yeah, I, I did. I think, um, and, you know, I still think I'm a frustrated filmmaker, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I felt like that was the place to get a job, you know, and to do something I was interested in that I would make money from. I was really kind of grabbing at straws. <laughs> and I guess because my parents were at that time quite successful, you know, they were freelance actors and they were always working. It's a different, it was a different era for them as well. And there was just heaps more work around then for lots of different reasons. And I think I just had an assumption that I would go that direction. I knew I didn't want to be an actor. It looked like a really, really tough kind of situation. And I think something I really noticed watching my dad specifically is like, you don't get to do your creative 
love unless someone employs you. And I just felt like I don't, I want to have more freedom somehow in that. And it felt like making films would give me that. But what I sort of experienced was when it comes to the industry, you know, that, that economy of filmmaking, that's completely not the case. You, you are completely working to a doctrine and under the pressure of having to make commercialised work to sell, to get the funding to do it. And very few jobs in that industry are creative. It's really there you're facilitating other creative projects, usually working on other people's projects and work um, and doing just a lot of admin labour, management labour, you know. So I I learnt kind of painfully (laughs) that that wasn't for me and I think I, I did it a couple of times. I kind of went into filmmaking and then I went and did a degree in fine arts and then came out and went back into filmmaking, worked in a, in, in film companies and kind of went, I hate this and I hate this kind of work and this is not a lifestyle or a, a work ethic that I can survive in. I cannot work seven days a week like this, you know. It's like 14-hour days. It's it's your life, you know. Um, <clears throat> you barely get dressed and come home. People barely get to do their laundry, especially when they're working on a film. Yeah. And I was just like, I can't sustain this. I don't, I'm not, it doesn't make me happy. Um, there, and, you know, getting back to that question about care, there is no care whatsoever in this. Yeah. It's also a very, um, you know, masculinised industry. Um, there's a lot of really problematic sexual politics. So there's lots of things that were really problematic. And I think for me that bridge was going back to fine art, which with all its troubles as an industry, it's still much more of a, a caring, open, questioning space with some really good politics that yeah. that I really appreciate still. Mm. I mean, when you were younger and you couldn't answer that question of who's your favourite artist, were there any artists who eventually came to be an influence or set a pathway for you? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think Francis Bacon um, was mm. one of the first sort of painters I really responded to, but someone that was lens-based that really came up for me was Sally Mann and I think I first experienced her work when I was 16 and Intimate Family had first come out that book where she'd um, focused on her children and it had been like a huge controversy. I think this is like the mid-90s and, I, you know, she's still a huge inspiration for me today actually and I do go back to her work now and again and I think just her process you know with her equipment but then also what she was sort of doing with it and how she was working in the landscape was incredibly intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of her later works which I've completely blanked on the name but where she actually worked with cadavers um, in terms of photographing them in different stages of decay for forensic units where they have these kind of body farms so people can learn how bodies decay and then, you know, work that into police work and understand how long someone's been dead for and that kind of stuff. But she'd sort of gone in there with her camera and she'd use like water in the ground and leaves to develop the film. So there was this kind of real interesting materiality that she brought into the making process, which again was then folded into the field work Mm. and then the conceptualisation of that work that was incredibly inspiring for me. And I I feel like I'm still working through with my own practice. Yeah. 
And the landscape is such a big part of your practice. How did that kind of start to enter things? Was that something through childhood or? I think definitely I've always been like a bush kid in a way. Like I've been really based in the city for most of my adult life. So that's a bit (laughs) of a misnomer, but I grew up in the mountains out just outside Melbourne, Mount Dandenong, and the landscape is really loud in those kind Mm. of rainforest temperate environments. And in some ways it's not because it's very suburban up there, you know, but I felt really written on growing up in that and just the weather and the climate and uh, the sounds and the echoes of those kinds of landscapes. And then equally, when I was in my teens, my parents moved to Hepburn Springs as my dad was working on a American Australian co-production that was based out in Trentham and they moved out there to because it was he had a long ongoing role in that show and that was a completely different landscape so it's like the gold fields it's semi-arid um and I think that really also started up this, what, what is this? And I still feel like when I go into any new landscape or just landscapes in general, I'm like, what is going on here and what is that and why is the water going that way and how is this kind of forest and why is the earth like that? And I have no idea, you know, and I think a lot of my work is like this fascination with how things have come to be and then realising there's a lot of layers and complexity and complication behind that as well. And definitely the goldfields present a a really rich palette when it comes to that, where I think when I first experienced them in my late teens, like 17, 18, I just didn't realise that history at all about what it was. So I was kind of fascinated in the ruins and, you know, all these kind of weird things jutting out of the ground that didn't make any sense to me. And then came to understand that that was a very sort of minute history in compared to, you know, the Jajarawong and, you know, tens of thousands of years of being on that land and how much that land had been changed when it was taken from them and mm. just those, like, really intensive sort of stories that go on in landscape which make them look and be what they are. And so I'm always just really fascinated in how that stuff works, really. And I think those sort of primary experiences in the mountains and then experiencing the gold fields really just set me on that course. Yeah. So when you are starting a new artwork, would it be the site or the landscape? Would that kind of prompt the work or would you have a concept or an idea in mind first and try to find a site that embodies that? Yeah, it's, oh, it's a good question. I guess a little bit of both. Mostly it's driven by an experience of a place, whether it's something I read about sometimes or whether or not it's just a quick visit. And I mean, Tasmania was really like that for me. I'd never been to Tasmania, I'm embarrassed to say, um, until like 2017, 2018. And I was just so struck by it. And not in the way that I was expecting, because everyone had talked about, you know, it's this like little boutique city and it's got, you know, it's craft beers and it's galleries. And I went there with um, some colleagues and my partner for the um, Hobart Book Fair. But I guess I just got completely sidetracked by the sort of incredible colonial history that sort of hit me in the face through the architecture. Mm. And then the a lot of the low socioeconomic aspects of Tasmania and then also the landscape of it and, like, this really feels like almost a different country to me and I guess it was just sort of a bit of a stunning awakening in that respect and then 
getting back home and reading um, and doing research around things just really got me super excited about what that place was. And I also think because I felt like such a newbie to mm. that place, you know, and, and definitely as an outsider, you're going to experience and see things really differently from people that mm. are from there always. So I always take that into account too. I, I really am not interested in romanticising a place, but, you know, I guess you come at it at a certain way initially anyway. Mm. Um, and I think it's been really lovely to spend time particularly with the site of Queenstown, going back there with a regular occurrence and when I haven't been able to through lockdowns over the last, like, 2020 and 2021, just spending time reading, discussing things with people and, and filling those gaps that way and just getting a really as much as possible a rounded sort of experience of somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I think it really does start with just those really lived experiences of spaces and then it becomes more, doesn't really become conceptual, but those aspects sort of are embedded in it as I go. Mm. This is probably a good way to segue into the video work for Notions of Care. Could you maybe just start by first talking through what, what is in the video in the site? So the spectral field is based on three salt lakes in the Murray Sunset National Park, which is in that sort of back corner of uh, the outback of Victoria between South Australia and the border of New South Wales. So the, the original work was made, was a commission uh, for by a organisation called The Cinemas Project, which is based in London, and it was for a show called um, Spectral Ecologies at the um, Mildura Art Centre. So that work had initially been part of a longer process of field work with a curator and another artist, Sam Nightingale. And then some years later, Catherine Honey, one of the curators of Notions of Care, came to me and we spoke about that work and recontextualising it in a way for the show. Mm -hmm. So the work is very much based on this particular space in the Mallee and really looking at the materialities of that site and just focusing on the the sounds and the, the the visual aspects and the enormity of the Murray Sunset Park uh, National Park. It's one of our largest national parks. And how do you go into that space? It's actually really hard to access. Um, it's a long way away from anywhere. I think I had to drive like four hours each way because the only place I could stay was in Mildura and so to get out there I didn't camp out there because I also had to like charge my batteries I had to get yeah there's all that kind of stuff so yeah I think it's it's really a work about me navigating those sort of immense um, ephemeral salt environments which at first feel really kind of deadened with it there's not a huge amount of sound that comes at you initially. And there's not a lot of move movement to really look at. And so initially I remember getting there going, I don't know what I'm going to film. But just sort of being out there day after day really sort of opened up just how expansive that site is on a macro level. As much as it is a massive site, there's so much going on. It's so lively. It kind of really blew me away. And really that's what the work is about, exploring those macro and micro ecologies that I sort of experienced in my fieldwork. So how long do you have to be out there filming to get a video work? Like how many days would you? It's, I mean, it's it so fluctuates. For that, I think I was out there for 10 days, but I'd done two other research trips 
trips beforehand. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of a staggered process where I was grabbing footage and finding my way to that particular site and then did like 10 days out there and always walk away feeling like, oh, I didn't get enough. And I think a lot of my work is always about what I don't don't capture, what I miss, you know, um, as well. So that's always in my head and then it becomes about piecing it together with what I was able to get. Yeah, I really think that most of the work came together in 10 days. But then equally it can be, you know, I've had a work that was spread out over six months of just like one day, two two day visits here and there, pulling things together or a solid two weeks somewhere. It's really dictated by what I'm able to do and what the space that I've been given, you know, like a residency, I have a lot more time. It's just how much time I can get off work. It's all those things come into that consideration. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of your work reminds me sort of, I guess, of like the land art movements in the 60s and 70s, where it wasn't about looking at the landscape as this idyllic or picturesque thing. It was actually about unpacking all of these, um, the historical aspects of it, the capital, the technological aspects. And I feel like your work does that so well. Why do you think that way of looking at the landscape compels you so much? Um, Firstly, that's so cool that you think about <laughs> that movement when you think about my work. That's very, I feel very, very privileged. Um, I'm not sure at all that I'm up to, to that, those kind of artists. But, um, I mean, I really see landscape as, a, you know, a reflection of us, me, I guess, to get really personal about it. I think over time in my practice I've changed the way I work in landscape and think about it as well. I think initially I was a lot more dis- disconnected in the kind of work I was making with it. But um, I think my first trip to Iceland in 2012 really made me realise that there was a tacit relationship going on with it and and that's what's been really interesting to me in just really how to move and think about the world, you know. And over time I've really realised that there isn't this sort of threshold between me and landscape and the things in landscape. Mm. It's just a whole kind of swirling entanglement of living and matter that's going on and changing all the time um, and how deeply political landscape is, you know, and I think that's my interest in particularly contested environments. And I think you could say all landscape is contested in some way, but in terms of thinking about, like, what that word means, it's a questioning, it's an argument of some kind and, um, and I definitely think that's what landscape is for me. It is a questioning about living and life and what we do in places and what we leave behind. And mm. that's the, the whole concept and subject of land use is really fascinating to me. And it really does stem back to, again, having an experience, a, a sort of child experience of the the goldfields in central Victoria, really, and just going all this stuff that I'm trying to make sense of, which has a story I can't yet piece together, is the remnants of something, of how this place was used, you know, and the on-flow effects of that are so profound and continue to be, um, not just in the soil and the compacted clay and the fact that there's no topsoil and those kind of really obvious things of what happens when you dig the earth up, but then just what's happened to the Indigenous communities, Mm -hmm. the animals, the climate, which has radically shifted from everything I've read Um, you know, from pre-settlement to now and how much a part of that ongoing process we are and we can change and make changes in that or equally drive it further into the ground, you know. Mm. So I think it's a really personal experience of why I'm interested in 
the landscape in general and why I feel implicated in that. Yeah. And something like the goldfields are so interesting because it's so a part of this mainstream national identity as well. And I feel like maybe the Australian landscape isn't more loaded than other landscapes in the world, but our idea of how we envision the landscape feels so tied to national identity. Yeah, absolutely. This obviously very colonial identity. Are you thinking about that sometimes when you're out in the landscapes? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's something I've really had to work through in myself and continue to. And definitely, you know, I am part of white supremacy. You know, I'm uh, part of a really difficult and horrific uh, history and culture, you know, of what it sort of wrought on this so-called Australian landscape. And I think that coming to bear with what that is has come to me bit by bit through practice and just through being educated, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my experience of landscape has, as I said, it's really shifted, you know, from what I understood as a younger person to now and will continue to shift. And But I agree, I think, particularly for colonial um, outposts and col- colonies like Australia, that we do really have a really complicated national identity when it comes to what Australia is or what the concept of Australia is and what it looks like. Mm. Um, And mining is a massive part of that. I mean, you could argue that it's really the beginning of Australia. Um, We've always had this kind of tight relationship with extraction, going into these really remote areas, hard to reach areas and taking things out of the ground and getting rich off it or people in other countries getting rich off it, you know. Um, A lot of our, you know, really important sort of social thinking and working has really come out like, you know, um, a lot of our union movements. So that it, it, it's really wedded to, I think, how um, Australia has come together in good and bad ways. And I think, you know, extraction has become a really hugely important part to how I think through sites or what interests me in sites because of those those questions and because it, it makes up so much of this identity of what it is to be Australian. Yeah. Just even hearing you talk through that, I mean, you obviously care about the environment so much. And do you feel like it's a bit tricky on the one hand, balancing that sense of care, but then creating an artwork where you don't want to be too didactic because that will, I mean, it it unavoidably just ends up turning viewers off, but you want to compel them to care at the same time. Yeah, no, absolutely. I have totally no interest in being didactic about things. And I think the way I approach it to get away from that is I'm really not interested in telling anybody about anything, but rather just showing them what I have seen that I think that's interesting and doesn't necessarily make sense and how odd this is when we look at it at a certain way. And I think my work has gotten more and more engaged with community because something I've really experienced is when you go into remote sites and communities, they're such a huge part of things. And yeah, so community has become a really big factor in uh, not being didactic, actually, and just really getting a sense, again, of the complication of that space and how other people experience their lived environment mm-hmm. um, and their particular narratives and histories in a way that I won't as an outsider. Mm-hmm. I think that is also really part of active caring for me is to hear those different responses that might not uh, or might be in conflict with my own overview or politics, but how important they are to hear that and how it really expands my understanding of a place. And I think 
that also goes into just, as I was saying, not wanting to tell people anything in particular, but rather show through sound as well, like getting people to listen to environments of just what's there. But it is a sort of balance about there's a real observational aspect to my work um, and a listening sort of aspect to do that. But then equally, I am aware of audiences and I do come from a film background and I am aware of editing and (laughs) I wouldn't say at all that my work is in any way wanting or trying to create this kind of raw, unaffected experience of the site. It is totally constructed, what I'm doing, and more now than ever, I think I, my work is based in fact and research, but then I also bring in fictioning and narrative to certain parts of it as well Mm -hmm. to create those sort of story spaces. So I feel like as an artist it's really about showing and listening um, and I'm just interested in stories and just telling stories and how people want to experience that in some ways is is really up to them. I think that's how I get around that that sort of didactic question. At a larger level, and I guess what's happening with the environment and, you know, consistent environmental threat, when you you read the news and you see what's happening in the world, do you feel hopeful or do you feel kind of despairing? <laughs> I'm a bit of a misanthrope, actually. This is probably probably first thing I feel is pretty despairing about humanity. But, look, I think there's a lot of amazing stuff going on and I definitely have some good friends who work in the climate industry as well and they always bring to me some incredible stuff that isn't necessarily in the news cycles mm. that's being worked on or changes that are being made. I feel, I feel hopeful in certain people's, Uh, just work um, and their work despite hopelessness. Yeah, I think there's actually a lot of amazing stuff going on in terms of walking back some really difficult things with our climate. They're just not necessarily being picked up or writ large across the world, which is the issue. I I do feel the future is going to be continually more difficult, whether it's with climate or whether it's with democracy um, and or just basic living conditions and housing for people. And I mean, I, I'm talking globally at the moment, but just like pulling focus to Australia, I think things are going to be more difficult. That's my feeling of just looking at how things are going and how they've been going for the last 20, 30 years. And then for me, that question is really about well, what can we put in place together to make life more easeful to make life more ethical and to make life more caring for, you know, us and landscapes and all the non-human actors in those landscapes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's jury is completely out. <laughs> it's like a day-to-day questioning. Um, but, you know, I think it is dark times and there's no way to sugarcoat that at all. We've definitely seen that with the pandemic. We've definitely seen that with some of the massive climactic catastrophes that we've been seeing that are getting closer and closer together. And I think that threat and fear is in a lot of people and in unconscious and conscious ways as well. And that was Polly Stanton for this latest podcast episode supported by Nets Victoria. You can listen back to previous episodes in this series with Kate Tucker and Katie West. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us. Or otherwise, listen at Art Guide online, where you can also keep up to date with art-related features and interviews from across the country.